Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Hello, hello. It's an exciting night to be doing this. Yes, and I have a feeling a lot of people know about Emily's List and how much we have to be grateful for you for, but for those of us, those in the audience who haven't read the book yet, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how much you've raised and how many women you have put in office through Emily's List. Well, I have to begin by going back to what it was like in 1985 when we began, when there were um, virtually no women in top offices. There were 12 Democratic women in the United States House of Representatives. That had gone down from 14 in the, the early 70s, so 15 years of the women's movement. We'd actually lost two seats in the House. Uh, Since that time, we've uh, added 110 Democratic women to the House of Representatives. Yep. And there'd never been a governor of a large state. We've had, we had some Democratic women elected governor, not very many, but we've added 11 women governors, including the incomparable Ann Richards of Texas. But the thing that got us going, that made us furious, that frustrated us and energized us, what the, we had never been able to elect a Democratic woman to the United States Senate in her own right. 1986, our first election, Barbara Mikulski, our first candidate, became the first woman. And in total, we've helped 19 Democratic women go to the United States Senate, including Barbara Boxer and Dianne Feinstein. So uh, little old Emily that was frustrated and angry said, if we could create a community of people that wanted to help pro-choice Democratic women, and we gave you all the information about who you are, we could raise enough early money to make them credible, we could help them go through the entire campaign, and we could create history, and we have done it time and time again. Yes, and has raised over $400 million. That is kind some early money. Yeah, that is early money. <laughs> And are there, are there other groups that are out there that are doing, that are focused on winning elections? Uh, there really aren't. We're a, we're a very unique kind of organization, and it's one of the things, it took me years to kind of appreciate how odd Emily's List is. You know, in the political world, uh, the funding comes a lot, not just from individuals, but from political action committees, PACs. And PACs are created primarily by organizations that have a legislative agenda. And their goal is to raise as much money as possible. They dole it out and they try to get votes and make friends on Capitol Hill. So they want 51 senators who believe in what their agenda is and like them and will meet with them and talk. And the same thing in the House, 218 people in the House. So they divvy up all their money and uh, they essentially are trying to make friendships. Now, they don't really care about winning elections and what it takes to win elections. They just want the connections. And so heavily, they invest in incumbents. It's why it's almost impossible for, to defeat incumbents. Well, we wanted to do some, all kinds of things that were different. First of all, we, want, we knew we weren't going to have a lot of races. We didn't have a legislative agenda. We wanted to be able to elect a smaller number of women. So we reinvented political fundraising. 
And we said, what we'll do is create a donor network where you join Emily's List, and we are kind of like your political staff, and we'll go find pro-choice Democratic women who have a chance of winning. We'll tell you about who they are, what they stand for, what's going on in their races, and we'll ask you to write checks to whoever you want. So if 1,000 people make out a check to Barbara Mikulski for Senate, write a $100 check and send it back to us, we can raise $100,000 as opposed to the five or 10 we can give as a pack. So huge leverage on these races. <laughs> and then of course, as we grew, we started doing more and more things to help women understand uh, how to build campaigns, how to mobilize women voters, and how to win elections. Yeah, and the, the growth is incredible. But if I think back when I was reading your book, and okay, so no, in 200 years, no woman had ever been elected in her own right to the Democratic Senate. Democratic woman. Democratic right. woman. And you have this idea that this is what you're going to do. Right. So you thought of something that no one else had ever thought of. Well, some people had done the Council for a Livable World, had a sort of a donor ne network right. concept, but nobody had ever really taken it and made it work like Emily's List. And you, you came up sort of, you weren't political growing up. No. Nope. And I wore pants for you because that was your first political right. win. It was. <laughs> in college, we had, I went to a, a women's college in Virginia, and uh, we were not allowed to wear pants to class or to dinner. So every day we'd have to change and put on our skirts to go over to the dining room to have dinner. And as my first political activity as a campus activist, I uh, went to the president of the college, and I, um, you know, this is in 1969 I graduated, so it's in the heyday of citizen unrest, I mean, of student unrest, and people taking over administration buildings and all these terrible things, and here's little old proper preppy me. I think the president of the college was terrified. So I thought, well, I'm going to invite him to come to dinner to the dining room. And I don't think he'd ever had a meal in the dining room with all the students. He was a nervous wreck. Um, and I, of course, then began to lobby him. And sure enough, uh, before you knew it, he said, OK, I'll change the rules. You can wear pants to class and to the dining room. So it just shows what total intimidation and a good pair of jeans can do for a person. <laughs> And, and chapter three starts with a great old quote. There are two things that are important in politics. The first one is money, and I forget what the second one is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm at as 100 years old, right? I think right. that quote. Um, early money is key for any election. And, and why is that the stubborn key? Why is that the thing that Well, has why don't stayed? I tell you about Barbara Mikulski's race? Because it's such a, it's like a little case study of yeah, why Yeah, and she bookends Emily's list Yeah, right now, she so does. Uh, and just a marvelous, marvelous woman and has done an incredible job in the Senate. But let me talk to you about how we got her there. Now, uh, first of all, you should know, if you have a, an image of what a United States senator should be, you know, this tall, handsome man with silver hair, uh, you know, Barbara's four foot ten, a little stout, her hair's kind of going every which way. She uh, comes from an ethnic neighborhood in uh, Fells Point in Baltimore. She came into politics, she was a social worker, and they were gonna put a highway through the community, and she basically organized everybody and stopped the, the building of the highway. They then elected her to the city council, she went to the House of Representatives for 10 years, uh, and was ready when her United States Senator retired to make a run for the United States Senate. So Barbara, um, you know, not your prototypical Senate candidate, gets out there, and the same thing happens to her that we'd heard from women all over the place. First poll comes out, and Barbara is double-digit lead on her opponents. She is from Baltimore, and she is running against a congressman, Mike Barnes, from Montgomery County, great guy, wealthy part of the state, uh, and then the governor of Maryland, also a Democrat, but he was having some trouble with the savings and loan scandal. So it really was not, he was not gonna be a factor in this. 
So Barbara goes to the funders and she says, well, I've been in the House for 10 years. I'm ready to move up to the Senate. Uh, I am strong in, in the polls. Look at this Baltimore Sun poll. I have a double-digit lead. Will you make a contribution? And the guy said, no, you're not going to be able to raise any money. And uh, because of that, we're going to support Mike Barnes because he's going to raise all the money from Montgomery County. And it's, you just have name recognition. And when he goes up on television, you're going to lose. So the Mikulski campaign, chaired by uh, a campaign manager, was Wendy Sherman, called me on the phone. And she said, all right, here's what we're going to do. Um, everybody in the campaign of our little tiny staff of a handful of people, uh, one of whom, by the way, was Martin O'Malley, who was her field director, um, we're going to do nothing but raise money, and we want you to go out to Emily's List and start raising money for us. Now, we're brand new. We have three million members today. When we did our first candidate mailing for Barbara Mikulski, we had 600 members. And we were created this new thing that was like totally different. And so we really didn't know, were people gonna make out the checks to the candidates? Were they actually gonna send them back to us? Um, we were supporting two women, Barbara and Harriet Woods. Would they ever all, all the money go to one and not the other? Where, or would people, in fact, write two checks to two candidates at the same time? So we sent out our mailing, and we just prayed this was going to work. Well, and Barbara put you on the spot. She's like, I got you down for $100,000. I know. <laughs> so I thought, I better get out there and get to work, because I don't know what, you know, she, she thinks I'm going to do this. So we send out the, the mailing. We start praying, and the returns start coming back from the mail. Within three weeks, we had raised almost $30,000 for Harriet and $30,000 for Barbara. We had raised more than four times what a pack could have contributed. So we were off, my goodness, the thing worked. We were beyond excited, as you can imagine. So the Mikulski campaign kept raising money. We kept working with our members. And when the first public filing came out, lo and behold, Barbara Mikulski raised significantly more than Mike Barnes. Now here's what happens in politics. It's the funniest damn thing, I tell you. Mike Barnes' money all of a sudden just dried up, stopped like he could have just slammed the door. He ended up running out of money practically by the time we got to the primary. Barbara, who had this beloved base in Baltimore uh, that was giving her this double-digit lead, just went on from there, and she ended up beating him by more than 30 points to become the nominee and the first Democratic woman senator in the Senate. <laughs> so... Uh, for the first time, this early money that had been such a problem for women, we now had a way to make it work for women. And that, of course, is why we have our wonderful name, Emily. Early money is like yeast. We made the dough rise. Makes the dough rise. And it just kept on rising. <laughs> Yeah, I love, I love. I didn't realize that that was the name until I read the it book. Is. I felt, I know, I felt. I Often felt like I just I say to the that. audience, "Who's going to do it with me?" Because I know there are members in this audience. What does Emily stand for? Early money is like yeast. There you go. The congresswomen, when I would tell them this in the beginning, and they go out and they do talks, and I'd hear these reports that, you know, Congresswoman Kennelly spoke to us today, and she was so excited. She said, there's this new organization called Emily's List. It stands for uh, uh, money, easy money. money. Like, no, no, Something early money, money is like yeast. Yeah. So then, so you had that win, and then 88 was less interesting. Oh, no, 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 no. No? Not to me. Oh. <laughs> Not to me. Remember I said there had been a decline of Democratic women from 14 to 12? In 1988, we only elected two Democratic women, but since I'm one of the best lemonade makers you've you ever met... You are. Wait to read the book. We uh, reversed lemonade. the decline of Democratic women. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this.
You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale.com. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. There weren't any senatorial. You weren't backing any There were no senatorial candidates. Yeah. And then 1992 was the year of the woman. Wait, we forgot 1990. Oh, 1990. Oh, well, you know, it was elected <laughs> governor in 1990, and Richards. Richards. Okay. We were the biggest funder of her primary race uh, and uh, raised a ton of money of her when, when she was going down to the polls against that awful Clady Williams. We stuck with her, and she came back, and it was electric. And... I, I want to stop and say one of the things we did, and I started working with a wonderful woman named Judy Cantor, who is sitting here. And uh, Judy helped us build Emily's List in the Bay Area, and we went down together to Texas. And when um, Anne was uh, sworn in, she said to everybody during the campaign, we are going to move up, uh, we are going to march up Congress Street and take back Texas for the, take back the Capitol for the people of Texas. So when we went into this uh, to see her sworn in, there was a woman's event on the, in a big office building. And she came up the street with this huge march of people go, marching up the street to take back the Capitol. It got to the building where all the women leaders from all over the country were and, and stopped the parade and invited all the women leaders to lead the parade to take back the government. Yeah, there are some, there are some crazy stories in the book about the Ann Richards, the whole oh, yeah. rise. Is it, is it true that the, woman, the man she was running against said that the year he didn't pay taxes, the economy crashed, and then he tried to take all oh, the yeah. people to Mexico and get them drunk so that they wouldn't write about they it. They wouldn't report it. <laughs> so you read it. We have all kinds of great inside <laughs> There's stories. There's a lot of great you, stories. You remember when she gave that great speech at the, at the convention and she said, George Bush, he can't help it. He was born with a silver foot in his mouth. <laughs> And the, and, and the and Ginger Rogers, Ginger Rogers yes. uh, is, does everything Fred Astaire does, only backwards. And as Anne would say, and in high heels. <laughs> well, in the book, you're going to find out what happens when Anne goes back to Texas. And the political Democratic establishment in Texas is not so sure they like the idea that this woman is going to be you know, in charge of who, who pays attention to Democrats in Texas. So you'll get a lot of inside stories about, about some really wonderful people like that. And I thought, like, I, my husband and I, we watch politics like most people watch sports. So to me, it was like page turner. Like, I could not put it down. Um, 
But there were years that weren't big wins. There were, yeah, and but those... after, after 90 and Ann Richards, now you gotta understand, we're like the little engine that could, right? I mean, we have going into 1992, after Ann's win, we had about 3,000 members. I think we'd raised about one and a half million dollars. Uh, we had a staff of about seven people. And we knew that there were going to be some open seats in 92 after redistricting, and we were hoping we could elect more women. Uh, and so we were chugging along, just building the list, telling more and more people about Emily's list. And then the roof blew off. With Anita. President Bush nominated Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. So you're going to love this book. You're going to remember all these things. <laughs> well, and the movie's coming out in oh, a month and with Kerry right. Washington. So I always do a pop quiz at this point. Um, the Judiciary Committee knew that Anita Hill had made this charge that Clarence Thomas had sexually harassed him. And they tried to sweep it under the rug. Who was the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee that tried to keep it a secret? Oh, you guys are good. Joe Biden. Biden. Vice President Joe Biden was chair of the Judiciary Committee during the Thomas Hill hearings. And Nita Totenberg brought, um, uh, made the story public, and they all of a sudden had to deal with it. You remember the seven congresswomen with Barbara Boxer being leading the way, marching over to the Senate saying, you've got to deal with this, you have to listen to this woman. And we were riveted uh, because nobody really had talked about sexual harassment. It was the dirty little secret of the workplace. Women tried to cope with all this mad men kind of television show behavior, and it never really was um, anything you could bring up because you'd lose your job and you'd be in big trouble. So women all of a sudden watched 14 white men on the Senate Judiciary Committee basically either sit on their hands and do nothing to defend Anita Hill or essentially just trash her. And uh, women were furious, and they started saying, where are the women? Why aren't there any women? And, and uh, so they basically rose up and said, we are going to elect women to Senate, into the Senate. There were two women in the United States Senate out of 100 members at that time, Barbara, of course, Mikulski, and Nancy Kassebaum, Republican senator from Kansas, and your Diane Feinstein had one of the greatest lines of the Year of the Woman. She said, 2% is great for low-fat milk, but not for a representative <laughs> democracy. <laughs> so uh, Emily's list took off, and Judy and I were running all over the place, and 60 Minutes covered us, and uh, by the end of the election, we had uh, multiplied the membership sevenfold, uh, raised $10 million. We then elected in that one election four Democratic women to the United States Senate and 20 Democratic women, new Democratic women to the House. So it was crazy. And I loved the part in the book where you're like, okay, they have to stop calling and saying the senator is on the line. We have oh, to get yeah. more women senators right. so I don't know who this is every time they call. And then you got that big win. And then the tides turned in 94. 94, 94 we ended up uh, having a very bad election. Remember, it was after health care reform. Uh, people were very unhappy that things hadn't changed. Uh, your Diane Feinstein was up for re-election because she had the little short term that John, that was Pete, the end of Pete Wilson's term. It was a very complicated situation. She had to run again in 94. And she ran against Michael Huffington. Oh, yeah. Uh, who was married to? Ariana Huffington. Okay. You guys are going to be good. You should have written this book. <laughs> And uh, so, she, so Diane was running against Michael Huffington. Diane was the most popular political figure in California. And Michael Huffington had never done one darn thing in the House. He bought his House seat, and he basically announced he was going to spend $30 million of his own money going after Diane Feinstein. And they came, went up with an ad 
that Ed Rollins had put together for Huffington. And it said it was essentially about um, uh, by a Diane intervening uh, to help a Raytheon get this small little thing taken care of that Michael Huffington, their congressman, refused to lift a finger to help him. And it was either that or they were going to have to shut down a plant in his district. But he didn't want to bother doing anything, so she fixed it. And some of the uh, officers of Raytheon made her a contribution. So this ad tells this story, and it says, Diane Feinstein is just a special interest jukebox. Put in your money and get your favor. And I looked at that ad, and I called Mary Beth Cahill, who was our executive director, and I said, oh my god, do we have a problem here. And you may recall, it was he was spending money left and right. Diane's numbers were, were going down and down and down. And we had an idea that if we could reach women voters and bring them to the polls in what is now a non-presidential election, where turnout always drops, it would help Diane and Kathleen Brown was running for governor. We could help our Democrats uh, win, but certainly Diane. And so we took our training director and sent her out. She started working for the California Democratic Party, and we created the first women vote program. And we targeted about 950,000 women who had no history of voting in a non-presidential election. They were either newly registered or they voted in previous presidential one, but then they stayed home, and we thought, you know. So basically, no expectation that these women are going to vote. And we started doing a program with mail and tried to encourage them to do vote by mail, which Democrats never did in those <coughs> days. And when we got the numbers, they were so unbelievable, we thought they'd made a mistake. We literally said, go back and run this again. We targeted 950,000 people. More than 425,000 of these women voted in the election, and Diane was reelected by 165,000 votes. So if those women had stayed home, we would have lost Diane Feinstein in the United States Senate. That was the power of women vote. And so in 96, we took it nationally, and it became part of what is now a very expanded political program. We do all kinds of things to help our women candidates. We give them a lot of assistance in putting their campaign together. Uh, we mobilize women voters. We train people to work in campaigns. So we're now a full-service political organization. But the biggest and most powerful part of it is women vote, and it started right here in California with Diane's race in 1994. That's incredible. Yeah. And I remember... I remember one other piece from the yearbook that you said the Chronicle helped with that. They reported about Huffington. Some oh, they did. Everybody was, but you know, it's sort of like Donald Trump. I mean, it's well, you know, people don't read the paper, don't pay attention. They see the ads, and the ads have the impact. And it was absolutely like tight as could be until election day. Until election day. In fact, it was the absentee ballots. This was highly unusual for Democrats that turned it around for Diane. And how big is the, the uh, women vote now? Oh, now we spend tens of millions of dollars on um, mobilizing women voters. And it's a wonderful thing. As we, as we built this political program, Emily's List now, obviously our goal is to elect our, our pro-choice Democratic women. But a lot of the things we do help Democratic men as well. And women vote is the best example of that, because if we can encourage someone to go out and vote, let's say 94 they go out and vote for, for Diane, they don't just turn around and walk out of the voting booth. So they, they start going all the way down the ticket. And so we can, if we can get those women out there and convinced to vote for Democratic candidates, it helps Democratic men and women win. So it's a wonderful way to give back to, to the, uh, the whole ticket and the whole party in a state. And, and as it was growing, you started to have to make some tough choices because you have more and more women running. You have to make, you make some hard choices like Carol Mosley-Braun, who mm -hmm. 
didn't seem like she had a campaign at first, even though she had Tony Podesta working for her. Um, she did not have a campaign. It's not that she didn't seem to have a campaign. <laughs> Carol nothing. did not have a campaign. I'll and, t- you want me to tell you the story of Carol? It's yes. A, you're not going to read the book if I keep telling you all these stories. Well, she's the only African-American woman she, that's senator, right? right? We're going to so. change that this year in California, though, right? Yeah. Okay. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices Channel on Twitter. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, And now to to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, You know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and, I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets, I don't think I'm that mysterious, you know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life, I like pretty simple things, uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner, his name's Todd Gage, uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. So here's, um, here's the story with Carol. It's the year of the woman. One of the people who voted to confirm Clarence Thomas was a Democratic senator from Illinois, Alan Dixon. He was running for re-election, and a trial lawyer in Illinois was determined to take him out, and he was going to spend millions of dollars against Alan Dixon. Meanwhile, Carol Mosley Braun, who is the recorder of deeds in in Chicago, was angry about what had happened in in the Thomas Hill hearings, and she said, I'm running for the Senate because Alan Dixon voted for Clarence Thomas, and, you know, never mind that, I'm running against him. So she runs, and um, she came to Washington, and we met with her, and I was actually out here, and our political director, Karen Johansson, met with her, and she's, when I talked to her, she said, oh my God, she's just the most wonderful woman. She's warm, she's smart, she's personable, but she has no campaign, and, and you know she hasn't raised any money. She told me she had pledges. Well, any fundraiser knows that pledges doesn't mean money, right? Until you get the money, you don't have the money. Um, so we, you know, we said, well, we really love her and she's great, but we just, we have to only support viable candidates, so we better not get in. So there, you know, this campaign is going on and the two men are killing each other on the airwaves. The, the trial lawyer is attacking Alan Dixon. Alan Dixon is fighting back against the, a trial lawyer and Carol has no money. Nobody even knows she's there and it's back and forth and, 
And uh, they start having the debates, and they get in the debates, and you know, it must have been like the Republicans. So, uh, you know, one is attacking the other, and then back and forth, and you're the lousy scum, and no, you're worse, and all this stuff. Meanwhile, Carol gets up to speak, and she makes sense, and she's charming, and she has this incredible warm smile, and all of a sudden, people are like, I don't like those guys, but she seems kind of nice. And <laughs> you could kind of feel that things were changing. So Gloria Steinem calls me at the office. She'd been in Illinois, and she was doing an event for Carol. And she said, Ellen, you really have got to get in behind this woman, Carol Mosley Braun. I said, well, Gloria, you know, we want to, but... I don't think she's raised $100,000 yet. I mean, she just has nothing. No, there's really something going on here. Are you sure, Gloria? And she said, yeah. I said, all right. So I went back to Karen. I said, we've got we've to endorse her and make a contribution to her. It was way at the end. So lo and behold, we do. Primary night comes. The two guys um, are just have, nobody can stand either of them. <laughs> And this woman who spent basically nothing in the Senate campaign defeated the incumbent Democratic senator in the Democratic primary. It was mind-boggling. And it just was like an explosion in the political world. Because all the energy from Thomas Hill hearings that we've been talking about since October, here's the first primary in March, and this woman beats a Democratic senator. What is going on? And that launched the political part of the Year of the Woman. And we went on from there. And in April in Pennsylvania, Lynn Yackel uh, beat the lieutenant governor uh, to run against Arlen Specter. And it just sort of going on from there, including Barbara Boxer. Nobody thought Barbara Boxer was going to win the primary. Mel Levine from Los Angeles had the support of the Berman machine down there. He had $4 million. Nobody thought Barbara Boxer was going to win. It was the year of the woman, and, and a lot of women turned out, and Barbara Boxer won the primary. So, but it all started with Carol, who, of course, went on and became the first African-American woman elected to the Senate. And so have you're very careful about how you spend Emily's List money. So has the way that you choose to back candidates changed over the years, or has that pace stayed pretty steady? It's pretty steady. Um, it, it's our, our commitment to the members is that we support pro-choice Democratic women, and we support candidates who have a realistic chance of winning. We're going to send you candidates and ask you to write checks to them. We're not going to tell you about people that don't have a chance to win. We're not going to waste your money. We want you to invest in a, in a place that makes sense. So we do a lot of work understanding what does it mean to be a viable candidate. Is this a realistic race? We look at polling. We look at what the campaign plan is. We talk to the candidate. What have you done? You know. Are you making your fundraising calls? You know, you're running a good campaign. And when we decide that somebody has a chance and we then begin recommending that candidate to the members, we get them started, we raise some money, and just like good political venture capitalists, um, if they keep doing a good job, we keep mailing and keeping the money flowing in. Uh, sometimes candidates just don't grow. You know, they, they had a chance, but, you know, we tried to help them, but unfortunately they never really got off the ground. So we kind of let them go. Um, when we see somebody that's in such good shape, they've done such a great job that they're a surefire win, we stop sending money there. So we're always, our goal is to elect the greatest number of Democratic women in any election. And so it becomes this constant process of kind of triage. And so by the end, we're just really making tough decisions about who's going to get that last little bit of money in October, you know. Um, and, and so when you're a member of Emily's List and you understand this is what we're doing, you know every time we tell you someone needs help, it's a good investment and we're going to carry you through this process as sensible, well-informed venture capitalists. They're going to maximize your return by electing the most democratic women. 
And, and I'm going to jump ahead to, to this election really quick because there was a woman, Hispanic woman, Lucy Flores in mm -hmm. Nevada, who Emily's List had backed before mm -hmm. and um, is not the candidate that Emily's List is backing. That's this time. right. Now, in that I, case, that was there's more than one woman in the race. And, and, you know, let me talk a little bit about that because we knew that was going to happen. But in 92, it started <coughs> out with a bang with. Jerry Ferraro and Elizabeth Holtzman running against each other in the Senate primary in New York. Liz Holtzman was a member of Congress during the impeachment um, uh, trials of Richard Nixon, very smart lady, and gone back home. She ran for the Senate, uh, failed at running for the Senate, and was involved in Manhattan politics. And of course, Jerry was in the House and then was Fritz Mondale's running mate in 1984. So, two powerful feminist icons, uh, as well as two men. And that kind of set the stage for how we approach this issue. What we decided is that we had to look at these races and first of all decide if we didn't choose between the women, would we lose the opportunity to elect a woman and the man would win? So, you know, did we have to make hard decisions? And then who was the stronger of the women candidates to win the general election? Because it's not about just winning the primary. Who can win the general election? And so in that case, we picked Jerry Ferraro. We did the same kind of equation recently here with Lucy Flores and Susan Lee, um, and essentially concluded that though we love Lucy Flores, she wasn't as strong in the campaign, and therefore, if we were gonna elect a woman in that seat, we needed to come in for, for Lee in that race. So it's a, it's a tough decision. It often means um, uh, not supporting women that we like, but at the end of the day, if there's one candidate that we think can win this race and um, we need to come in and make that happen, then we make those tough decisions. And, and that must have been a really tough decision because I know that you have an initiative to get more Latina women mm -hmm. into government that was also sort of right. put in place. Um, so to have to make that choice. Well, that's right. We, we are uh, extremely... Um, uh, committed to electing women of color, and in fact, a third of the women we've elected to Congress have been women of color. Uh, it is uh, a top priority for members. It is a top priority for Emily's List staff and board, and uh, we are doing all kinds of different ways of outreach and trying to expand that effort. And we have a wonderful slate of candidates in this election. Uh, Catherine Cortez Namastow in Nevada, as an example, uh, is running with, for Harry Reid's seat. And uh, she could very easily become the first Latina elected to the United States Senate. So uh, join Emily's List. We got a whole slew of candidates across the country. Tammy Duckworth in Illinois won her primary I, tonight. I think, yeah, you're getting some good news in on I'm, some I'm of these today, I'm getting some good news. Right? We, uh, got, uh, uh, we won the primary nomination in uh, uh, North Carolina today for the Senate and also for the top of the ticket. And uh, so um, we got two candidates running from the primaries in April, Donna Edwards for Mikulski's seat and uh, Katie McGinnick in, in um, uh, Pennsylvania. So we've got a whole crew of people and I'm not gonna go through them all because you can go to emilyslist.org and see them for yourself. And while you're there, grab your credit card. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'm can't wait to see all the finals from Super Tuesday, especially excited about the Hillary sweeping right now. But um, but it's still at 20%, right, women? It is. It's and, 18, I think. Yeah. And so what are the other barriers? So Emily's List is helping them get money. What are the other barriers that are keeping, keeping it there? Well, I'll tell you the biggest barrier to electing women. It's not gender. It's not what you think I would say, but it is not gender. It is the power of incumbency that makes it very difficult to bring newcomers into office. And there are very few opportunities really to add newcomers. And, and let me just do some sort of equations for you so you get a chance, so you get a sense of how we think about what we did. 
uh, not only in races, but how we develop the political program and the work we do. Typically, 95% of the members of Congress who run for re-election are re-elected. It's shocking. You think we have these big fights back and forth, Democrats versus Republicans. It's, it's always over 90%. It, it is typically roughly 95%. Because of the way the congressional districts have been drawn to protect incumbents, there now are basically 200 solid Republican congressional districts and 200 Democratic districts and very little marginal districts in the middle. So when we look for places where Democratic women can win, all of a sudden those 200 Republican seats for the most part are off the table. So now we've gone from 435 you know, the, it's getting narrower and narrower. We can't beat the incumbents. And in any election, maybe there are 40 to 50 open seats. Well, by the time you get rid of the Republican districts, we're literally looking at 25 seats where maybe if we have a woman ready to run, we can begin on an even playing field. So it's not looking at 435 races. Once you narrow it down, it's looking at 25 or so. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Sines, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale.com. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Weatherford BMW is where I spend a lot of my time. I love what I do and I love the people I work with. But work's not the only thing I love. I love the everyday simple things in life, like mornings at my favorite coffee shop, taking walks with my dogs around Point Isabel, and spoiling my partner for a scenic but thrilling ride. That's the beauty of living the Bay Area dream. We're just being ourselves, living our authentic life. Live your authentic life, a special message by Weatherford BMW. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. So what Emily's List has done is being very mindful of this, we have built a political program that takes advantage of every one of those opportunities we can find. And we do everything from recruiting and training women to run for the state legislature, so when one of those opportunities pops up, we know who's there and we can go recruit them. We've developed a whole way that we can help campaigns such as um, uh, doing this training, having people on our staff that work uh, with candidates, and we mobilize women voters, we raise money. We do so much in those rare opportunities because there is not an opportunity to lose. And, you know, I could read a little bit from the I know, book. From you Gwen want me Moore? to do that? You want me to read you a little snippet about a race like that? Uh, because it's a great story. Gwen Moore um, is a, a wonderful woman, uh, first African-American elected to Congress from Wisconsin. And uh, this race that I'm going to talk about took place in 2004. And Gwen was running. She'd been in the state assembly. She had been in, uh, in the state senate. And she represented the urban core of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Had very poor district, um, but and very, she was very beloved in her district, 
had this great grassroots um, following in her district, but to run for Congress, she needed to broaden her outreach, and because of redistricting, a lot of white working class Democrats have been added to the congressional district. So her congressman retires, and um, everybody's looking at this seat, and Gwen is looking at the seat, but of course the political establishment, just like Barbara Mikulski, has their guy, and his name is Matt Flynn, and he is uh, a very successful lawyer in the community. He was the former chair of the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, getting the picture, like you know, the establishment's guy. He had the tacit support of the governor and the most powerful member of the congressional delegation and all their people were sort of helping Matt Flynn. He was raising money like crazy. And uh, so here, once again, we have our pro-choice Democratic woman trying to take on the establishment. And so let me tell you what happened when Gwen ran for Congress. Gwen had been trained by our POP program, which is our state legislative program, but she still had only a vague familiarity with Emily's list. For the most part, she dismissed us as a bunch of rich white ladies. I had heard of Emily's list, but I just knew they weren't gonna help me. I heard they didn't help black people. But that was precisely where Gwen was wrong. In fact, that more than one third of the women we helped elect were women of color, and we were exactly what Gwen needed if she was to expand her base. So we immediately assigned Jennifer Palaja, a young staffer at Emily's List, to work with Gwen. At first, Gwen was standoffish. When, when Jen told her we would support her, she responded, oh, I know, you're the people that are gonna make me swim across the English Channel, and when I get to the other side, you're there with warm towel and hot chocolate. <laughs> Well, Jen told Gwen she was exactly what Emily's List was looking for, a committed pro-choice Democratic woman who would be an excellent member of Congress and wait till she saw what we could do to help. Gwen was a fascinating candidate. In the state Senate, she'd become a powerful voice who had real fire in her belly. She gave startlingly candid speeches on the floor of the State House, using her own life as an unwed mother and someone who had been assaulted as a child, as an example. This woman is fantastic, said Jen. She's one of the smartest people I know. She has a photographic memory, she's crafty. When the community couldn't borrow any money, she went off and started a credit union. It was typical of the way Gwen thinks and acts. We should have it, so she did it. She was terrific on issues that were important to her district, such as food stamps and housing. The problem was that none of those issues brought in political money. I've never seen a candidate who had such a small potential fundraising base, and Gwen was almost proud of it. One of her supporters gave her a box of pennies and I saw Gwen literally counting the pennies, said Jen. She wanted to make the point that the contribution meant as much to her as all the hours spent raising money on the phone from white liberals. So suddenly you had an understated, mild-mannered young white woman from the Midwest, Jen, trying to tell this unstoppably powerful black woman what she needed to do. It wasn't easy. When it came to debating, Gwen's rhetoric was not exactly geared to the affluent white liberal donors she needed. As Gwen put it, her style was street. I know how to argue, I know the facts, but before Emily, my style was something like this. To demonstrate, Gwen slowly took off her glasses and looked directly at me as if I were an opponent in a, in a televised political debate. I'm going to tell you how it is. And then she burst into laughter. Of course, Gwen was putting us on. She was much too smart to blow up her own campaign. But just in case, we made sure Gwen's rhetorical skills were refined somewhat by the time the election was over. Amazingly, it all began to work. Emily's list couldn't do the actual work of the campaigns, fundraising, organizing, and the like. But we had a continuing interest in assessing our races. Of course, a critical part of that process was advising staff, many of whom were new to their jobs, on what was working and what wasn't. So we sent staffers to monitor Gwen's field operations and her get-out-the-vote process. 
help her with debate prep, and raise money from progressive donors. In the end, we sent so many staffers from Emily's list that Gwen used to name Emily as a prefix for all of them. Emily Jen, Emily Dave, Emily Heather, and so forth. I was proud to be known as Emily Ellen. Gwen was a powerful and much-loved candidate, but it was also true that our relationship with her was a terrifically productive political marriage. In the last reporting period before the September primary, Gwen raised $354,000, four times as much as Matt Flynn, and more than 200,000 of that came from our members. In late August, Women Vote went on TV with an issue ad praising Gwen for her work on education. We are at her side every step in the way. When the votes came in on September 15th, Gwen earned her win in what can only be described as a colossal landslide, winning 64% of the vote to just 25% for Flynn. It was hard to remember that just a few months earlier, Flynn had been the prohibitive favorite. And that is the power of Emily's List. And and now we are going to be taking your questions. I also wanted to point out this graph that we blew up very quickly from the back of the book that shows where Emily List started. The bottom line is where the Republicans are as a percentage of women. And the top line shows exactly how much we have to be grateful for for Emily's List in growing women in Democratic today, politics. Today, Democratic women, yep. It's, it's pretty amazing. Democratic women now are a third of the Democrats in Congress. We both started out at 5%, Republicans and Democrats. Republican women have gone from 5% to 9%. So in 30 years, they have made no progress of electing Republican women to Congress. It is a scandal. Well, and if you hadn't started Emily's list, That's right. we could be in the same position right now. That's right. So I said, really when I incredible. first saw this graph, because I've been trying to get the staff to run these numbers for me, and they finally showed me the graph, I said, I want this on my tombstone. <laughs> Be the only tombstone with a graph on it. And the policies that your women have brought forth have changed our world for the better. So, questions? So, uh, what would be your biggest advice for a young woman who wants to run for office someday? Um, my first is um, think about it, and I'm glad you're thinking, I hope, about it, and making plans. Uh, I think you should get involved in your community and find out what the uh, issues are that are happening there and how you can help and really get a sense of how you can become a problem solver. And as you do that, you will then make a lot of contacts with people who eventually can become your support team and your political network uh, when you decide to run for office. So it's not something you do right off the bat. You've got to kind of make your, you have to get your political uh, tentacles out there, learn a lot about what's happening with people and what they need and how you can help provide it and, of course, how government can help. But uh, at the end of the day, go for it. Don't be afraid. Be brave, you know, dare to win and go out and, and run. And Emily's List and organizations like Emerge will help you do that. Given the current landscape, which three candidates do you think are going to be ready to take on the presidency after Hillary wins it? Oh. <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> well, I like the way you put it. And I guess that means they have eight years to sort of put it all together. So, you know, that's good. Uh, there are now a wonderful number of very talented women in the Senate and running for the governor in Congress. Um, you've seen the senators, Amy Klobuchar, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand. Uh, you know, I, I think we're going to see a lot more women from the local level, and eight years is a long time for people to pop up. So it, when we started, and people say, well, do you care about electing a woman president? Well, yeah, but it was about the most unrealistic thing in the world. I mean, there were just no women ready to run. They were nobody prepared. And so one of the things we've done is really try to create a deep bench of um, Democratic women that are doing a very good job in their current positions and are ready to move up. And, and so 
Uh, you know, I think Hillary has the same attitude as Barbara Mikulski had when she became the first woman to the Senate. She said, you know, I don't want to just be the, the first woman in the Senate. I want to be the first of many. And I think Hillary feels the same way. Hi, good evening. Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. 